0: Welcome to Strong Not Starving, my name's Marcus Kane, and if you wanna beat binge eating and create a rewarding dynamic with food, exercise, and body image, you're in the right place. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. So are weight loss drugs a solution for what's being called food noise? compulsive, obsessive thoughts around food that disrupt your day and make it hard to stick with healthy habits. Now, I experienced this myself for 15 years while struggling with food and my body, and almost everyone I've ever worked with has experienced it to varying degrees. I've had countless people tell me, look, like, I don't want to sound like I'm crazy and hearing voices in my head, but I feel like there's a voice around food and my body that will not ever shut up. You know, thinking about food constantly between meals, planning what you're going to eat, constantly working to make social plans fit around your diet, maybe even saying no to or avoiding certain social situations because of your diet, feeling like you have to compensate for certain food choices with exercise or calorie restriction or even purging, and basically just a ton of mental time and energy going to food every day in a way that's distracting and and disruptive, often anxiety-inducing. The things I'm unpacking in this episode about the way the wind seems to be blowing with weight loss drugs and what's being called food noise, these are concerns, not accusations, right? For legal reasons, I'm not naming any individuals or companies in this episode. This episode is about things I want to make sure you're really well informed on so that you don't become collateral damage of misinformation around weight loss. And I feel it's important for me to be transparent here. The nature of my job involves helping people who are in a rough place with food, body image and exercise. So when someone has a good experience using what I might call restrictive diets, weight loss pharmaceuticals or with something like bariatric surgery, they don't come to me. This means I spend a lot of time with people who've tried these avenues and have had them go very badly. And of course, that will influence my opinions. So I want to acknowledge that and clarify something here. I believe autonomy and personal power is essential when it comes to finding our way with body image, health and your relationship with food and exercise. When you make choices that lead you to a better place and you're able to own those choices, having made them from a place of being self-aware and well-informed, it leads to the kind of confidence that brings more peace into your life. The thing about that is I can't encourage selective autonomy right? Like that's not how autonomy works. I can't say make your own choices as long as they're in line with what I think is right for you. Like that's ridiculous. And anyone who tries to do that is infringing on your chance to cultivate peace and fulfillment through developing confidence, like that kind of confidence that only comes with being able to fully own your decisions. So that when you do get to a better place and you do achieve something good, you can go, huh, I did this this was my choice in light of that I understand why weight loss drugs are in the spotlight and I understand why a lot of people might be reaching for them or tempted by them or curious about them for some people weight loss will improve health and quality of life and naturally the idea of pharmaceutical assistance with this that's going to make the the process potentially easier like that's a, a pretty appealing idea. And right from the get go, I'm not going to deny the fact that there are people out there who've had good experiences with weight loss drugs. And for anyone who might not be at risk medically in terms of weight, but are still in larger bodies, despite growing awareness around body acceptance in 2024, there is still a very real social pressure around body weight and shape. I'm not saying I think we should bend to that pressure at the expense of our mental health But I want to acknowledge that for many of us, that pressure is an ongoing source of struggle. And it's not my place or anyone's place to judge you if you find yourself feeling that pressure and feel curious about investigating all possible options available to you. What it is my place to do is to help keep you as well informed as possible regarding long term physical and mental health and direct your attention to potential traps along the way. And forgive this cheesy example that I've used before, but think of me as a navigator, not the captain. Like, I'm holding the map, pointing out obstacles, and suggesting possible safest routes, but you are the one at the wheel making the decisions. Now, I've worked with people who have lost weight and have kept it off as a byproduct of our work together. This is an extremely important distinction to make here. Weight loss was not The focus of that work. But weight loss happened to occur as we improved the relationship with food, exercise, and the emotional experience surrounding those things. Again, weight loss was not the focus or the goal. Health, resilience, peace, and fulfillment were the focus. And I'm saying all this to try and make my position personally and professionally, when it comes to weight loss, super clear. I'm not on a witch hunt for people who advocate weight loss, though at the same time, it's not what my work is based around because I don't believe it is helpful to structure goals around weight loss. My work is in helping people break miserable cycles of disordered eating and anxiety surrounding food and body image. However, that said, I understand that pharmaceuticals play a role in helping some people become happier and healthier. Problems only arise when these drugs are misrepresented or misused. And that brings me to the point I want to make today about some recent content released by the medical director of a large weight loss company implying pharmaceutical solutions could be an effective avenue to reduce what's being called food noise, compulsive and disruptive thoughts surrounding food that feel intrusive and negatively affect quality of life. So let's rewind and play this back in slow motion from a different angle for just a second. A private company... That endorses restrictive dieting, offering a pharmaceutical solution for food noise, a well-documented side effect of restrictive dieting, while being less than transparent about the role that restrictive dieting plays in the development of food noise. Where to start with unpacking that? There are a lot of people out there making a day job for themselves by just ripping into other people's content and exposing things and tearing people down and whatever. You know what? That's not me. I find that really fucking exhausting and boring. And I'd rather just show up here telling you, you know, things that are good ideas rather than draw a lot of attention to, like, the boogeyman. But... This, I believe, is an extremely slippery slope that is just littered with ethical landmines. And let me say again, I don't believe there's anything wrong with weight loss drugs when they're responsibly prescribed to a person who's well-informed and self-aware. This is about one thing and one thing alone. If we're going to talk about food noise, let's not leave anything out. I'm going to do my best to unpack this and show you what's happening here in a manner that makes sense. So let's start with a bit more about food noise and... A recent report released by one of the world's largest weight loss companies. This report, which I'll leave unnamed again for legal reasons, comes on the heels of research conducted by aforementioned weight loss company on the subject of food noise. And although there was a lot of helpful information about weight stigma, the challenges facing people who this report defines as being overweight or obese, and a big emphasis on removing stigma around weight loss medications... There wasn't actually much talk about the causes of food noise beyond the brief mention of genetics and biological factors. And the thing that has really pissed in my cornflakes about all this talk around research on food noise from a weight loss company... Is that it seems to ignore the fact that we already have significant evidence from a very famous study about the role dietary restriction plays in the development of constant intrusive thoughts about food that are disruptive to daily life. Now, experts in the field of body image and disordered eating have referenced genetic traits that can make some of us more likely to struggle with things like obsessive compulsive thoughts and behaviours. Professor Harrison G. Pope... Makes reference to this in his book, The Adonis Complex. So yes, of course, when it comes to nature versus nurture, genetics play a role. But the presence of a genetic predisposition doesn't absolve private companies or individuals of responsibility when we have such strong evidence of the role restrictive dieting plays in the development of disordered eating, especially if one of these private companies is starting to talk about offering a pharmaceutical solution for one of the most distressing elements of disordered eating and eating disorders, what they're calling food noise. Now, this strong evidence around food noise, where it comes from that I'm referencing doesn't only come from countless case studies of dietary restriction. There was a study conducted on the physical and psychological effects of dietary restriction after World War II called the Minnesota Starvation Study. Now, you might have heard of this study before, sometimes it comes up in conversations surrounding eating disorders and disordered eating, but what I'm about to tell you. These are some essential points about the study from the Duke University School of Medicine. Now, what I'm about to describe might hit home for you, or it might even be pretty upsetting. So this is your trigger warning. But what's really gonna blow you away is the approximate daily caloric intake for participants of the study during what's described as the semi-starvation phase. So let's get into it. The origin of this study. After the terrible conditions soldiers faced during the First and Second World War, it was clear that there would be a need for large scale relief feeding. So this was about identifying how to best help individuals in the refeeding process to provide post-war rehabilitation. In November 1944, the University of Minnesota conducted a study to identify the best type of rehabilitation diet for individuals who had experienced starvation. To conduct this research, 36 young healthy men were recruited to participate. In order to participate in the study, individuals had to meet the following criteria. Good physical and mental health, must be able to get along reasonably well with others, and must have a true interest in relief and rehabilitation. Now the experiment was conducted in the following way. The first 12 weeks was a control period. The next 24 weeks involved semi-starvation and the last 12 weeks involved controlled rehabilitation. An additional eight weeks of unrestricted rehabilitation was held for 12 of the subjects and for 8 to 12 months following the starvation recovery, the study conducted follow-up examinations. So during the first three months, the researchers observed and collected data about their participants' normal eating behaviors in line with healthy calorie and nutrient intake. For the following six months, the men's diets were restricted to half of their intake to reflect the conditions of war in Europe. As a result, they lost approximately 25% of their body weight. Now, I know you might be thinking, that's pretty fucking extreme, being restricted to half their normal intake, but the psychological impact of long-term dietary restriction is not a binary thing it happens in varying degrees of severity based on the individual's experience and we don't need to go as far as this study did to produce levels of quote food noise that are disruptive to daily life So when it comes to the final three months of the study, participants were re-fed and rehabilitated. They were divided into four groups and re-fed with different caloric amounts, starting at a low quantity. Like I mentioned before, a small group of subjects stayed for an additional eight weeks and were fed an unrestricted diet. During those initial weeks of the unrestricted diet phase, Each participant was allowed to choose their own meals and consequently ate between 7,000 and 10,000 calories per day, more than double what they were happily living on before the restriction they experienced during the study. After the period of restriction, not only had the participants' bodies gone through physical changes, but their psychological well-being had been dramatically impacted. Significant differences in the themes of the participants' cognitions were observed. So they started thinking different shit. Compared to the start of the study, the participants were far more preoccupied with food. Food and eating became focal points in conversations, reading, dreams, and even daydreams. For example, when they watched movies, the study's participants were recorded commenting on the frequency of food and eating mentioned. Some volunteers developed concentration issues. Due to their preoccupation with food. During mealtimes, participants were recorded becoming possessive over their food. Worried that others might try and eat their meals, they'd guard their food defensively with their elbows. Some of these guys even started to become very upset when non-participants in the cafeteria area were seen, quote, wasting food. Now, during... rehabilitative phase more eating behaviors developed men started eating several meals in one sitting and developed gastrointestinal upset and headaches as a result they experienced difficulties in reading their own hunger cues participants described feeling hungrier and using binge eating and purging behaviors during the refeeding period even after five months of refeeding and rehabilitation, they continued to use these behaviors and developed body image concerns. Tell me that doesn't sound almost to the letter, like what happens when someone falls off the wagon of a restrictive diet. Additionally, the participants developed an extreme distaste for wasting food, They used methods to create the illusion that they had more food on their plates than in reality. They started toying with their food, cutting it up into small pieces, and making meal consumption last for hours, which previously would have taken minutes. Moreover, participants who had been most extroverted in their social life became isolated and described themselves as feeling socially inadequate. During the semi-starvation and rehabilitative phases, participants were recorded developing new anxiety and depressive symptoms not present at the beginning of the study. Over the first six weeks of the rehabilitation period, many men reported feeling even more depressed than the semi-starvation phase. It was observed that the only times these participants showed positive emotional reactions were in response to discussing their weight, food, or hunger. That observation in particular is always hard for me to talk about because it's such a clear snapshot of the self-perpetuating nature of being stuck in a cycle like this. It's far from fair, but in the initial weeks of breaking the cycle of restriction, we're often not rewarded with immediate relief. It would be great if our courage and resolve to break free from this cycle brought with it positive feelings that bolster us for the journey, but unfortunately, those initial weeks can feel incredibly difficult and send many people with eating disorders retreating back into old habits. Finally, the participants' physical changes throughout the experiment were significant, of course. Not only had the participants' weight changed during the different stages of the study, they started to experience new issues with gastrointestinal discomfort, dizziness, headaches, decreased need for sleep, edema, hair loss, and cold intolerance. Even their basal metabolic rate, or the amount of energy in calories the body requires at rest and just uses on a day-to-day basis, changed depending on the stage of the study. By the end of the semi-starvation period, the volunteers' basal metabolic rate, their daily requirement for calories, had decreased by 40% from their baselines. Now, critics of this study might try to pull apart how BMR was being measured in 1944, but even if we allow for a 20% margin of error, we still see a situation where dietary restriction has led to significantly decreased metabolic rates in other words dietary restriction slows your metabolism making it progressively harder to lose weight in summary this study suggests that the act of restriction and extreme dieting impacts an individual's physical social behavioral and psychological well-being to this day the Minnesota starvation study is considered one of the most critical pieces of psychoeducation to share in the treatment of eating disorders so that was excerpts from the starvation experiment from Duke University School of Medicine. Now, when it comes to food noise, constant intrusive thoughts about food that are disruptive to daily life, as described in the recent report from one of our largest weight loss companies, you know, the one that's putting their best foot forward to discover the cause of food noise. I think we know a little bit about that already. To suggest for the briefest of moments that we don't understand enough about food noise already to say that dietary restriction is a major factor is fucking insulting. We know that dietary restriction and what's being called food noise go hand in hand. And what I find concerning here is that a company that has made a profitable business out of dietary restriction since decades before the turn of the century is now starting to frame weight loss drugs as an avenue to reducing food noise. This is a little bit too much the arsonist and the firefighter being the same guy type situation for my liking. And before I forget, the daily calorie count that was labeled semi-starvation in the Minnesota starvation experiment was just over approximately 1,500 calories per day. 1,500 calories per day for these men was labeled semi-starvation. Even taking into account different people in different size bodies and different calorie requirements, not a week goes by when I don't speak to at least two or three people who are trying to live on less than 1,500 calories per day under the umbrella of being on a fucking diet. Now, let me say it again. I am not against the responsible, ethical use of weight loss drugs or any pharmaceutical. I am not anti-weight loss. I do not encourage making weight loss the primary focus of your existence because there's enough evidence to suggest that that doesn't go well for most people long term. But I'm not closed off to the fact that for some people... Weight loss is a positive thing. I'm not saying to demonize weight loss companies or weight loss drugs. And I'm definitely not saying to judge people harshly if they choose to seek pharmaceutical support. Unless, of course, it's a high-profile Hollywood asshole or influencer using drugs to perpetuate toxic body image standards and lying about it. Give them as much shit as you want. I'm just saying to be aware of the whole story here. One more time. A private company that endorses restrictive dieting Offering a pharmaceutical solution for food noise, a well-documented side effect of restrictive dieting, while being less than transparent about the role restrictive dieting plays in the development of food noise. It pisses me off when I see people cherry-pick information. And I'm doing my absolute best to thank you for tuning into this podcast by giving you transparency, helpful info, and drawing your attention to my own personal biases. Now, I struggled with multiple eating disorders for 15 years. I remember what it's like to feel like my life was happening right in front of me and I was missing it. I wish I could go back to my younger self and just shake him. If I could, I would tell him, dude... It's happening. Your life is happening right now, right in front of you. Things you will only have one chance to experience and you're missing it. No one worth caring about gives a fuck how lean you are. You think you'll get another shot at this, but you won't. Breathe out, put on some comfortable jeans, Call your friends and just go out for a fucking pizza. Give yourself that and know that you don't need to binge when you get home because you're going to let yourself do it again very soon. If you relax for a minute and stop judging yourself, you'd realize that you're fun and funny and the only reason you're tired all the time and don't want to see anyone is because of what you're putting yourself through in the name of being good enough for people who don't deserve a moment of your time. That's what I would say to myself if I could go back. But I can't go back, so I'm saying it to you now. Your life is happening in front of you. Don't spend it distracted by making the size of your body the focus of your existence. That doesn't work anyway. If you want support, my details are in the episode description. Drop me a line and I will respond to you personally. And if you take nothing else from this episode, just remember, it doesn't take a genius to figure out where something like food noise comes from. Remember the participants of the Minnesota Starvation Study and what they began to experience. Did any of that sound familiar to you? You know, if it did, I get it. My name's Marcus Kane. This was Strong Not Starving. I'll see you next week.